0: PART 58 OF THE CHRONICLES OF CRIME, VOLUME One, BY CAMDEN PELHAM. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. PART 58 RICHARD HAYWOOD, EXECUTED FOR ROBBERY The termination of the career of this criminal exhibited him to be a man of the most depraved and diabolical disposition. He was indicted for having stolen two pillows and two bolsters, value ten shillings, the property of Richard Crabtree, and also for cutting Benjamin Chantry with a certain sharp instrument in order to prevent his apprehension. It appears that some suspicions, being entertained of an intention to rob Mr. Crabtree's house, which was left unoccupied, although furnished, Miss Jenkins, the cousin of that gentleman, and Mrs. Wilson, determined to watch it, and they accordingly took their station in the house of a Mr. Wilkinson, situated directly opposite to it, in Thayer Street, Manchester Square. They had not been long on the look-out before they saw two men enter it, having opened the door with a key. Mrs. Wilson, in consequence, went and knocked at the door, on which the two men ran out, and one running to the left made his escape, while the other, the prisoner, made a blow at Mrs. Wilson and ran to the right. He was afterwards pursued by Mr. Holford, and on Mr. Chantry stepping out from his own house to seize him, he struck him a violent blow on the head with an iron crowbar. He was eventually secured, and it was then found that the articles mentioned in the indictment had been removed, ready to be carried off. After conviction the prisoner behaved with shocking depravity, seeming to exult in his guilt, and regretting he had not done a deed more deserving of death. It was his constant boast that he would, on the scaffold, surpass the notorious Avershaw in evincing his contempt of life, and he constantly endeavoured to instil into the mind of his fellow-sufferer those diabolical principles which he had imbibed himself. His fellow-sufferer was John Tennant, who had lived as footman with Robert Shaw Esquire, a solicitor, in New Bridge Street, Blackfriars, but, inflated with the ambition of keeping a public house, he quitted his service and obtained the command of a tap in Little Suffolk Street, Dirty Lane, behind the King's Bench Prison finding his golden prospects in a public house, in a great measure delusive, he determined on robbing his late master, Mr. Shaw, and, being well acquainted with his house, broke open his money drawers and stole to the amount of more than five thousand pounds in cash, bank-notes, and other property. With such a prize, such a man could not long remain unsuspected, and he was soon detected in passing some of the stolen notes. The relentless Heywood corrupted the mind of Tenant and in the condemned cell stimulated him to follow his horrid example. They uttered the most blasphemous expressions, and sang lewd songs during the whole time they ought to have been employed in making their peace with offended Heaven. When the Keeper went to warn them of their approaching execution, they behaved in so riotous a manner that it was necessary to secure them with irons to the floor." Hayward, who was supposed to have procured a knife from his wife, while she was permitted to see him, rushed upon the keeper, and would have stabbed him with it if he had not left the cell. They uttered the most horrid imprecations, and, after declaring in cant terms that they would die game, threatened to murder the ordinary if he attempted to visit them. Their behaviour in other respects was so abandoned that the necessary attendants were deterred from further interference, and left them to the dreadful fate which awaited them. When the time for quitting the courtyard arrived, Heywood called to a friend who was present to deliver him a bundle he had in his hand, out of which he took an old jacket, a pair of old shoes, and put them on. Thus said he, Will I defeat the prophecies of my enemies? They have often said I would die in my coat and shoes and I am determined to die in neither. Being told it was time to be conducted to the scaffold, he cheerfully attended the summons, having first eaten some bread and cheese, and drunk a quantity of coffee. Before, however, he departed, he called out in a loud voice to the prisoners, who were looking through the upper windows at him, Farewell, my lads. I am just going off. God bless you. We are sorry for you, replied the prisoners. I want none of your pity, rejoined Heywood. Keep your snivelling till it be your own turn. Immediately on his arrival upon the scaffold, in a loud laugh, he gave the mob three cheers, introducing each with a hip-ho. While the cord was preparing, he continued hallowing to the mob. How are you? Well, here goes. It was found necessary before the usual time to put the cap over his eyes, besides a silk handkerchief, by way of bandage, that his attention might be entirely abstracted from the spectator's. At the suggestion of Mr. Holdsworth, however, Tennant made some alteration in his conduct. This officer, finding his advice attended to in this instance, entreated him no longer to follow the evil counsel of Hayward, but to employ of the few moments he had left in a Christian-like manner. Tennant shed tears, showed some contrition, and suffered the ordinary to attend him to the scaffold. Dr. Ford continued in prayer with him, and though he did not join with, yet he listened to him attentively. He came on the platform with great resolution, but did not then follow the daring and abandoned example of his companion. He was cleanly dressed, and observed a suitable propriety of conduct. He shook hands with Heywood, and just as the noose was placed round his neck, he emphatically exclaimed, "'Lord, have mercy upon me!' Heywood uttered some words in reply, which were not perfectly understood, but were supposed to be said to tenant by way of reproach. He then gave another halloo, and kicked off his shoes among the spectators, many of whom were deeply affected by the obduracy of his conduct. Soon afterwards the platform dropped. They suffered on the 30th of April, 1805. Henry Perfect Transported for Fraud Henry Perfect was a person who, by means of the most specious pretenses and ingenious frauds, succeeded in levying very large contributions on the public. Instances of fellows devoid of principle pursuing similar plans of imposture have been but too frequent of late years, but the system which was for a long time so successful of writing begging letters has been now almost entirely put an end to, by the praiseworthy exertions of the officers of that very respectable institution, the Mendicity Society, the object of which is at once to relieve the necessitous and to protect the public from imposition. The case of this person may be taken as a very fair instance of the degree of ingenuity exercised by individuals resorting to similar artifices as the means of gulling the humane Perfect was a man of respectable parentage, and of excellent abilities. His father was a clergyman, living in Leicestershire, and our hero, at the completion of his education, entered the army as a lieutenant in the sixty-ninth Regiment of foot. He was twice married, and received a handsome property with each of his wives, but their estates being held during life only, upon the demise of his second helpmate he was thrown upon his own resources. His commission had long since been disposed of, and he determined to endeavour to procure contributions by writing letters to persons of known charitable dispositions, setting forth fictitious details of distress. In the course of his numerous impositions he assumed the various and imaginary characters of the Reverend Mr. Paul, the Reverend Daniel Bennett, Mrs. Grant, Mrs. Smith, and others, but at last he was detected in an attempt to procure money from the Earl of Clarendon, whom he addressed in a letter signed H. Grant he was indicted at the middlesex sessions for this offence and his trial which came on at Hicks hall on the twenty seventh of october eighteen o four occupied the whole day it then appeared that the earl of clarendon being at his seat at wade's mill hertfordshire in the previous month of july he received a letter purporting to be from mrs grant which stated in substance that the writer having heard from a lady whose name she was not at liberty to reveal the most charming character of his lordship for kindness and benevolence, she was induced to lay before him a statement of her distressed circumstances. The supposed lady then detailed her case which was that she was a native of Jamaica, of affluent and respectable family, that a young man, a Scotchman, and surgeon's mate to a man of war, was introduced at her father's house who so far ingratiated himself with her father that he seriously recommended him to her for her husband. She did not like him, because he was proud, and for ever vaunting of his high family. But as her father's will had always been a law, she acquiesced on condition that he would live at Jamaica. They were accordingly married, and her father gave him one thousand pounds. He, however, soon became discontented with remaining at Jamaica, and continually importuned her to go with him to Scotland, and, as her friends joined in the solicitation, she consented. She had now been six months in England, but her husband had always evaded going to Scotland, and had left her whenever she spoke upon the subject. In short, he had gamed, drunk, and committed every excess, and within the last six weeks he had died in a rapid decline leaving her a widow with two children, and hourly, expecting to be delivered of a third. She was not twenty-three years of age, and never knew want till now, but she was left without a shilling to support herself and miserable children. She owed for her husband's funeral, and the apothecary's bill, for which she was afraid of being arrested. To avoid this she was going to seek shelter with a poor widow in Essex, and if his lordship would write to her at the post-office at Harlowe. she would, if brought to bed in the meanwhile, get some safe person to go for the letter. His lordship's answer evinced the benevolence of his heart. He expressed his readiness to alleviate her distress, but justly observed that her tale ought to be authenticated by something more than the recital of a perfect stranger. He desired to know who the lady was who had recommended the application to him, and assured the writer that she need not conceal her, for that he considered it was doing him a great kindness to afford him the means of rendering service to the necessitous. On the 14th of July his lordship received a note, nearly as follows. Mrs. Smith, widow of Captain Smith, begged leave to inform Lord Clarendon that Mrs. Grant was brought to bed. It was she who recommended Mrs. Grant to Lord Clarendon. While her husband was living, she had frequently been with him on the recruiting service in Hertfordshire, where she had heard of the benevolent character of his lordship. She added that Captain Smith, when in Jamaica, had frequently visited Mrs. Grant's father, who was a person of great wealth, that she had herself done more than she could afford for an amiable and unfortunate young woman. She had no doubt but that as soon as her letter should reach Jamaica, Mrs. Grant's father would send her abundant relief, but till then she might, without the friendship of some individual, be totally lost. In consequence of this last note his lordship returned an answer, and enclosed a draft for five guineas, offering at the same time to write to any person at Harlowe who might be of assistance to her, particularly to any medical person. On July 23rd the supposed Mrs. Grant wrote again to his lordship, acknowledging the receipt of the five guineas, and stating that she had the offer of a passage home, but she said that she wished to see his lordship to return her grateful thanks for his kindness. At the same time she was extremely delicate, lest their meeting should be misconstrued by a malignant word, and entreated that it might take place a little distance from town. The answer to this letter she begged might be addressed to A.B.C. at George's coffee-house, to which place she would send for it. His Lordship at her request wrote an answer, and appointed the bell Inn at Kilburn. Before the arrival of the day of meeting, however, his Lordship received another letter from Mrs. Grant, stating that ever since she came to town she had met nothing but trouble. Her last child had died, and she was seized with milk fever, that she had twelve shillings left of his Lordship's, and Mrs. Smith's bounty when she came to town that she was afraid of coming further than Whitechapel, lest her creditors might arrest her, and she concluded with the request of the loan of five pounds to be enclosed in a note addressed to Mr. Paul, to be left at the Saracen's Head Inn, Oldgate. His Lordship, in reply to this note, sent the money requested, and with great humanity condoled on her supposed situation. He then proposed to take her into the country where she might live quiet and free of expense, until she heard from her friends. The next letter introduced another actor on the stage. It came from the Reverend H. Paul. Mr. Paul, at the desire of Mrs. Grant, then said to be delirious, acknowledged the receipt of the five pounds. He would write again, and say anything Mrs. Grant might dictate in a lucid interval. He begged his answer might be left at the Chapter Coffee House. His Lordship accordingly wrote to the Reverend H. Paul, with particular inquiries after the state of Mrs. Grant, and proposed to send the proper medical assistance. The Reverend Mr. Paul replied to this letter, and stated the description of Mrs. Grant's complaint, which was of a delicate nature. He then stated the high notions of Mrs. Grant, who would not condescend to see any person from his Lordship in her present wretched state, and added that she thought her situation such that it was not delicate to admit any one to see her but those absolutely necessary. Mr. Paul therefore had promised, he said, not to divulge her residence, but declared that in her lucid intervals Mrs. Grant expressed the utmost anxiety to be enabled to thank her benefactor. This correspondence produced a meeting between the supposed Reverend H. Paul and his Lordship, which took place at the Bell Inn at Kilburn on the 8th of August. The prisoner then introduced himself to his lordship as the Reverend Henry Paul. They entered into conversation on the subject of Mrs. Grant, when his lordship asked every question as to her situation, with a view to alleviate it. Mr. Paul said he had not seen her distinctly, for the curtains were closed round her, but the opium had had an effect which he had known it frequently to produce. It had given her eyes more than usual brilliancy, with respect to her lodging, It was a very small room. The woman who attended her seemed a good sort of woman enough, and she was also attended by a surgeon or apothecary. As Mr. Paul seemed to be a man of respectability, his lordship asked him at what seminary he had been brought up. The prisoner replied he had been educated at Westminster and Oxford, and had the living of St. Kitts in Jamaica, worth about £700 per annum that he had property in Ireland, and was going to America on private business. To his lordship's question how he was so fortunate as to meet this young woman, he said it was by an accident that quite looked like a romance. He was coming to town in the ongar stage, in which were a young woman, two children, and a lady, all in mourning. He entered into conversation with the lady, and was surprised to find her the daughter of a person at whose house, in Jamaica, he had himself been frequently received with kindness. Although his business pressed, he determined to stay and afford her some assistance. He then stated that he had that day given her a two-pound note, which his lordship at this interview returned, being the note on which the indictment was founded. He added that Mrs. Grant's father was extremely affluent, and he should not wonder if he was to remit five hundred pounds at the first intelligence of his daughter's situation. His Lordship, in his evidence, said that he seemed to express himself in language of the purest truth and benevolence, and as he appeared a well-educated gentleman who had seen the world, he had no suspicion of any fraud. After this interview a correspondence took place between the pretended clergyman and his Lordship, in which the former stated the progression of the patient, Mrs. Grant, towards convalescence, and at her desire requested that linen, poultry, fruit, and wine might be forwarded all of which were supplied by the bounty of the noble lord. At length Mrs. Grant was sufficiently recovered to be able to write to his lordship, and in her letter she expressed her unbounded thanks for the benevolence which she had experienced at his hands, and remarked that but for the friendly introduction of the Reverend Mr. Paul she believed that she would have been lost. She then went on to say that although she had been ordered by her medical attendant to keep herself perfectly quiet, yet she could not resist the temptation of sitting up in bed to write to her benefactor, whom she hoped to be able shortly to thank personally for his numerous kindnesses. The last letter from Mr. Paul was dated August twenty-third. He acknowledged the receipt of six pounds two shillings, which had been expended for Mrs. Grant, and informed his lordship that the sheets which had been last sent had, by some accident, been near brimstone, which affected Mrs. Grant very much, that a situation required fine old linen, if his lordship had any such. He apologised, if there should be any inaccuracy in his letter, because he had a headache and some degree of fever. The farce now began to draw to its conclusion. His lordship received another letter from Mrs. Grant, dated Saturday, September 1st, in which the supposed lady said, Last Saturday her father's sister came to town and found her out. She was a sour old lady, a man-hater, and snarled at the whole sex. She had taken Mrs. G. into the country with her, although she was removed at the peril of her life. The lady she was with was nearly as bad as her her aunt, but, as the latter was going out for a few days, her Argus would let her come to town, which would enable her to meet his lordship. As her ill-tempered aunt had given her neither money nor clothes, she begged four pounds of his lordship. If this opportunity was lost, she should never be able to see him, as her aunt was a vigilant woman and hated the men so much, that at the first entrance into her room, finding the Reverend Mr. Paul there, she most grossly affronted him. She could not have any letter addressed in her own name, lest it should fall into the hands of her aunt, and therefore begged his lordship to direct to Mrs. Harriet, Post-Office, Waltham. His Lordship, in his answer to this letter, expressed some suspicions that he had been duped, in answer to which Mrs. Grant thanked Lord Clarendon for his favours, and declared that she was sorry to think he should conceive himself duped, but he would find his mistake when she got home to the West Indies. In a postscript she added, "'That best of men, Mr. Paul, died suddenly on Saturday last.' This closed the intercourse between his Lordship and his correspondents, Mrs. Grant and Mr. Paul. Soon afterwards, however, he received another letter from a Reverend Mr. Bennett, setting forth a deplorable tale of misery. But his suspicions being awakened, he employed his steward to trace the supposed Reverend Mr. Bennett. when it turned out to be the prisoner at the bar, who had imposed himself on his lordship as the Reverend Mr. Paul, that best of men, whom Mrs. Grant stated to have died suddenly his lodgings being searched, a book was found in his own handwriting, giving an account of money received, by which it appeared that he had plundered the public to the amount of £488 within two years, with a list of the donors' names, among whom were the Duchess of Beaufort, Lord Willoughby de Broke, Lord Lyttelton, Lady Howard, Lady Mary Duncan, Bishops of London, Salisbury and Durham, Earls of Kingston and Radnor, Lord C. Spencer, Honourable Mrs. Fox, etc., etc. Other memoranda were also found which showed that the prisoner had reduced his mode of proceeding to a perfect system, notes being taken of the style of handwriting which he assumed under his different names, and of the description of sealing-wax, wafer, and paper used in his letters. The jury found the prisoner guilty, and the court immediately sentenced him to seven years transportation. He was sent to Botany Bay in April 1805. Frequent convictions of a similar character have taken place, but it is to be hoped that if the exertions of the police have not been fully successful in putting a stop to the system, the public at least have been so far put upon their guard as that they will not submit to be duped, but that they will first inquire into and ascertain the real claims of the applicants before they extend their charity to them. End of Part 58